2: Welcome to And The Writer Is with Ross Golan. There are millions of singers, thousands of artists, and only 40 songs per genre at a time. These are the stories of the hottest creatives, the most venerable legends, artists, songwriters, executives, and more. Come join our Discord, follow our socials, and share your music with the And The Writer Is community. We'll see you all there, and now, here's this week's episode.
3: hey what's up it's paige mcdonald and this is your weekly music industry update jason allen has been promoted to senior director of infrastructure operations at digital music distributor tunecore sujata murthy has been promoted to executive vice president of media and artist relations at universal music enterprises the global catalog division of universal music group Royalty-free music startup Slip.stream has secured $7.5 million of Series A financing. Some of the investors include Sony Music Entertainment, Third Prime, and Lightshed Ventures. The online dance music retailer Beatport has acquired the music discovery portal Label Radar. Hypnosis Song Management has acquired the song catalog of Justin Timberlake. Sony Music Group is expanding its Unrecouped Balance program to eligible Unrecouped artists and songwriters globally who have been with Sony Music for over 20 years and haven't received an advance in over two decades. Pharrell Williams is launching a new NFT platform called the Gallery of Digital Assets. A new artist development incubator called Versewire has launched in Los Angeles, saying that it aims to act as a venture capital-like music fund. Sony Music Publishing Nashville and Black River Publishing have signed a worldwide publishing partnership deal. Social audio platform Gimme Radio has raised $3 million during its latest round of funding. Warner Music Group has launched Warner Music Israel, a new recorded music affiliate based in Tel Aviv. Universal Music Group is expanding business in the Czech Republic, including the relaunch of Capitol Records, Island, Skybox, Def Jam, Sing It On, and Virgin Music Label and Artist Services. Tim Pitthouse has joined artist management company 360 as President of Central Services. Helen Soshtev has been appointed chair of PPL PRS Limited, a joint public performance licensing venture operated by PPL and PRS for music. Nick Barr has been named vice president of A&R and creative strategy at Island Records. Madeline Napoleon has joined Warner Music Canada as its VP of marketing. The London-born ticketing platform Dice has expanded into Germany. Zach Katz, the former president of BMG US and former CEO of Raised in Space, is joining Phase Clan as president and COO. A big thank you to Hannah Rosenberg of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now, stay tuned for this week's episode of And the Writer Is.
2: Guys, listen up! Uh, last year we started working with Lamp. It's uh, it's a school called Los Angeles Academy for Artists and Music Production. Uh, it's run by and founded by Stargate. Their mentor list is nuts. It's you know Benny Blanco, Tommy Brown, Tanase, Emily Warren, John Cunningham. You know a bunch of people who've been guests on this show. So obviously we're fans of them and. This school has been amazing, and I wanted to bring them back this year so they can tell you an update on how LAMP is going and ways for you guys to get involved in LAMP. Um, Tor, dude, good to catch up. It has been a very strange time in the last year but you guys are still trucking through and it's even growing and growing so I I just want you to tell everybody you know what's going on how's how's the school going
0: well as you know uh uh, Ross the lamp is a one-year high-level music program we're in Santa Monica California and we have a site uh, with 48 students they collaborate write music produce every single day and we started this last year. We're just graduating our first class and we're doing admissions for the next year now. And just the level of music that's coming out of this place is mind-blowing. Uh, we thought it was going to be hard to get people up to professional level, uh, but people came in uh, with a growth mindset and uh, they're already at a professional level. So these guys are ready to go out because we create a real-world environment where it's just like being in a writing sessions. We pair producers with songwriters and artists and we write songs every single day. Then we break them down once a week, focus on the songwriting, focus on the performance, the production, the beats, are the beats hitting, are the titles great, are the melodies distinct, is it memorable, what, what can we do to make it better? And that's the type of feedback you don't get in the industry, right? No no one's ever going to tell you what you can do to your song to make it better. They just won't call you back. Uh, we we have a program where it feels like the real world, but you get professional feedback from the best mentors in the game.
2: I mean, I can't imagine if we would have had this when we were coming up. Just the ability to not only meet some of the people that you have coming in, but the ability to actually get that feedback is priceless because it took most of us a lot of uh not so good songs. To, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, to, when we
0: started LAMP, it was, you know, the mission was what can we. Give to the next generation that took us years to learn. What are the things that we wish we knew when we started out that we can tell people? Uh, so there's no formula, but there's definitely certain key principles that never change in storytelling and melody and song structure and all these key things to make. take your song from good to great, which is what it's all about. You know, it's not about having a bunch of good songs. It's about having those few that are great.
2: So tell me, if I'm a student and I come to Santa Monica to be at the school, what would a day look like for me?
0: Well, typical days that we have uh, mentors or workshop holders in the morning. We show up at ten a.m. every day, um, and then by three p.m. you're in the studio. You're ba- we have uh, sixteen writer rooms where we have you know it's fully decked out with microphones and monitors and keyboards and everything. People bring their own. You bring your own laptop, and then you write songs and create music and try to make magic happen every day. That's uh, that's our day and that's our week.
2: If I can't get to Santa Monica, is there any way for me to be to still learn from school? I, mean, I assume not every student comes to Santa Monica. Is there an online?
0: Yes, we have an online program which is uh, just as big as the, if not bigger than the on-site. Which is, you get the same content, you get air, you get. We share all the uh, mentors, we share all the workshops, we put people in groups. So you, you Zoom or you FaceTime in with your group that week. You create songs. You exchange files. We teach you how to record your own vocals if you don't know how to do that. We teach you how to exchange beats, text over music, uh, and then send that back and create a song by the end of the week. Deliver it on Friday and get feedback. Actually, you deliver it on Saturday now because some of the students have jobs, so we want to accommodate for that. Finish your song on Saturday, and the following week you get feedback from our listening panel.
2: Awesome, so admissions open now, how would I apply?
0: You only get in by going to lampmusic.com and sharing your music. You don't need a degree, you don't need uh, necessarily a formal education, you only need talent and the ambition and the will to get better. So go to lampmusic, that's L-A-A-M-P music.com, uh, you share your music, we listen to your music, and we reach out, set up an interview, and uh, we'll take you from there.
2: Tor, congratulations on on you know keeping this going. Uh, you know, I I just think you and Mikel are were, have been mentors of mine in many ways, and uh, I've just I'm so envious of these kids that they get to do it. So congratulations!
0: Thank you so much, Ross. All right, man. All right, thank you.
2: Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's music executive savant is the brains behind one of the industry's most progressive publishing companies. His ingenuity developed a way to help all songwriters collect royalties. His foresight contributed to the catalog boom, and his dedication has made him a leader for all songwriter rights. He hustled from the proverbial mailroom of legendary companies to the founding of Downtown Music, which has its hand in more than 23 million music assets on over, on behalf of over 1 million artists and clients from 145 countries. From a catalog that spans 100 years of popular music, including music from film and television and the single largest independent sound recording catalog, in the industry. All the way from New York City, this guy prioritizes his family first. So, song Trust Me, his journey to the top is worth a listen. And the executive is Justin Kalifowitz.
1: Thank you, Ross. That was uh, quite the introduction. Well, you know. <laughs>
2: uh, dude, so we've been friends for a minute and. Uh, I love your story because I think uh, I think there's, you know, what the Peter Principle is. No. The Peter Principle is this idea in business, and this is not your story, is the idea that you get a you get a job and you get uh, promoted because of seniority um be eventually beyond your capabilities right it's like <laughs> yeah. and, and the music yeah. the music industry is filled as all industries are with people who manage to get promoted without any skill set that actually should like give them that opportunity and most people who start at the bottom and work their way up if they're there long enough they'll eventually get there but most the people that i admire most in the business are the opposite of that they're the people who are not trying to rush the process they're just trying to make their own process so they don't get stuck in the mill and they don't get stuck in the you know that and and, and no no problem to people who work in the company and work their way up and many of them are capable and should be in those positions but you certainly went on a journey where you're like you started doing the typical like got jobs in companies and you could have gone that path, but eventually you're just like nah, I'm gonna go and do my own thing and kind of revolutionize the industry. So, uh, you know, I kind of just wanted to start from the beginning because like how how somebody sure. gets to doing what you've done. Um, is unique to only your story. You know, this isn't the story of somebody who just had an internship and ended up eventually being a you know a, a head of A R, president of a company. Like that's not your journey. So uh, let's start from the beginning, man. I mean, like were, were your parents in the music industry?
1: No, I I never had um, any real connectivity to the music business whatsoever. My uh, father was in the food business his whole life, um, managed restaurants, owned restaurants, everything, you know, 24 hour hot dog stores that I worked at when I was a kid, little luncheonettes that would deliver food down on wall street. You know, I was like 10 year old kid bringing, you know, hamburgers and milkshakes up to stockbrokers when they still place the orders by phone, uh, and paid you cash. And, uh, you know, but I was always told by my family that, you know, um, you, you know, figure out what you love and then figure out how to get people to pay you to do it. And I remember being kind of stuck. My mom asked me that very specific question. I was I had an overachieving brother and I was kind of, he wanted to be doing something very specific, film and TV at the time. And uh, I said, I don't know what I want to do. She's like, well, what do you do when you're done with all your chores? And I said, uh, I like listening to music. And she laughed and said, go figure out how to get paid to listen to music. And she just walked out of the door. I was, I think I was 13 years old at the time. And it's funny because in retrospect, and I was just with some friends from childhood not long ago, and they said, they said like, well, you know, since you were a kid, like you only wanted to be in music. It was the only thing you ever did. And I never really considered alternatives. Like I think a lot of people have this sort of, you know, uh, choice to make maybe what career they don't know. They think about it a lot. Before I even knew anything about anything, I knew I wanted to work in the music business. And it became a very singular focus of mine. Um, and I think that was uh, a, a big part of the beginning of the story you know
2: it's, It seems like your parents are pretty practical though if you're you know you're working in the food industries, everyone has to eat. Not everybody needs more entertainment, not everybody needs more music. Didn't your parents, even if they were like, you should do what you love, was there ever an asterisk like, yeah, you should do what you love, but also be a lawyer. Like, was it listen to music? And then no, did you ever get that no, or
1: was it? No, I never, I never got any of that, any of that. You know, my mother was a teacher. She, she taught um, nursery school, uh, her whole life She still teaches nursery school here in the city. And, um, she never, they, I never got that pressure. I never got the, you should be a doctor, you should be a lawyer, you should be this, you should be that. It was, it was very much, you know, um, follow what you want to do. Uh,
2: in, When's the first time you get sort of, you know, saying, you know, you should make a living listening to music is uh, not, it's specific if you're just a human on the planet, but it's not specific if you're in the music business. Um, How did you learn that there is more to the music business?
1: Sure. So, you know, my brother, as I mentioned, he was a bit of an overachiever. He started a uh, a video company when he was 13 years old and filmed local events and got got paid for it and he ended up going to NYU film school and uh, doing all sorts of you know production assistant work throughout that time and um, you know learned about uh, you know the concept of interning and being in the music business and he, do, he worked at Automatic Productions for a while which did a lot of Sony's uh, music videos and this is in the 90s when you know shooting music videos was a huge deal and a huge production. Um, he took me on a bunch of those shoots. I started to learn about the concept of what uh, the music business was. Got a copy of Billboard magazine at one of those things, started reading about what it was. Um, and when I was in high school, I started um, managing my friends' bands. Uh, this is not because, you know, I had this idea that I wanted, oh, that's gonna be my first thing, but it was, you know, my best friends were all musicians. Uh, they all played in bands together, but they couldn't get their act together to like fill out a form to be in the battle of the bands. I never understood why they wouldn't get their act together to just send a tape to CBGBs or wetlands at the time to try to get a gig. I just, we live here, we live in New York, why wouldn't you take that extra step to try to further your career? And I did that for them. And, you know, filled out forms, schlepped gear, and before I knew it, we started to meet people here and there. Uh, applied for internships, uh, you know, Interned at uh, you know independent labels, uh, you know a company called uh, Prime Music. Uh, worked at Metropolitan Entertainment as an intern. They were they were the guys behind you know the Woodstock '94, the '99 revival. Uh, they managed a bunch of artists like Art Garfunkel and Vertical Horizon. I, I interned at WPLJ, the you know Hot AC radio station of the time here in New York. Uh, landed internship at RCA. Uh, that turned into the first time anyone paid me. Uh, to be in the music business um did that for a short while and i had this sort of moment when i was graduating high school this is all in high school when i graduated high school i had this moment of you know what am i going to do where am i going to go to school and my parents he said the question before they pressuring me to be something a doctor or a lawyer they say no but they did want me to go to school and that was a very important thing and i couldn't imagine going anywhere uh other than somewhere in New York City. And I did apply to NYU. I was not accepted to NYU. Um, I spoke at NYU the other day, though. That was, that was fun. It's always fun to go back and speak and remind everyone that they'd let me in. <laughs> um, but I ended up going to the City University of New York. I went to um, classes early in the morning. I did accounting classes at you know, 7 a.m. And I did you know, marketing 101 at 8.30 a.m. And I was in the office by 10 a.m. Um, and I was very fortunate because they gave me a scholarship to go there. Um, I did that for a year. Then there was an opportunity in Los Angeles at Virgin and I wanted to go and I transferred into USC and kind of did the same thing. Um, and I did this semester, uh, at USC and by November and no disrespect to people in Los Angeles, driving a car drove me crazy. Um, I really wanted to be back in New York. I realized that just living in, I'd lived in New York my whole life. I I couldn't do it. I wanted to be back in New York city. And I remember sitting in, in Virgin Records, and I was talking to Gemma Corfield, who was the head of A&R at the time, and you know, we were talking about what I could possibly do when I moved back to New York. And she said, you know, you really should work in music publishing, because there's not many young people in music publishing, um, but it's where all the creativity can be if you want it to. Uh, and she said, it's also where all the money is. She said, people don't tell you that. They think it's here on the record side. All the money's in the publishing side. And I remember her saying this to me. I didn't know anything about it. I thought I was offended by this whole concept that she wanted me to work for a sheet music publisher. I, I literally thought it was like pressing sheet music is what she was talking to me about. And I really didn't understand. Um, shortly thereafter, I started to dig in more. I spoke to more people uh, at the company who were in publishing. I got set up with a handful of meetings in New York. And one of those was with a guy named Mark Freed uh, who started Spirit Music. And I was one of the... I was. 19 years old. I just moved back to New York and I met with him and he was looking for a young person to, I, I think the title was creative coordinator. I, I don't remember exactly the specifics, um, but it was a great, it was a great opportunity. I was one of, you know, four or five people at a company that had a very historic catalog, but didn't have much contemporary music. Uh, and I was given a rope to uh, go out and sign people and, um, you know, given a budget and, you know, slowly but surely we built out a really nice roster we did admin deals at a time where that wasn't really in fashion you know cobalt was just kicking the door down telling people they didn't need to sell their copyrights uh and and we were out there offering admin deals to people um and you know it was it was an incredible time in the music industry where a lot of people a lot of songwriters were owed a lot of money part of really big hit songs um, but didn't necessarily know how to collect it. And I found it to be an incredibly rewarding experience to go find these people who had hits on the charts, which is almost unheard of today, um, that they would have multiple hits on the charts for years and not think of themselves as songwriters or have not been sort of discovered yet by the traditional music publishing industry and just leaving, you know, in certain instances, millions of dollars on the table. Um, and in that short time period at Spirit, you know, songs like Family Affair by Mary J. Blige you know, there were two songwriters on that song who had never did a publishing deal. The song had been out for like two years. Um, you know, Hey Ma by Cameron, the producer of that song, DR Period, one of the most amazing producers out of New York, never never did a publishing deal. And we went and, you know, knocked, literally knocked on his door in East New York and said, you know, I, I think you owe some money. And uh, we ended up doing deals with lots of people here in the New York area who were Writing and producing on pop and hip hop records at the time, and you know, uncovering you know a, a small fortune for for a lot of these people, and it was an incredibly rewarding experience for me those those first couple of years of period. And I'll tell you that period sort of like nineteen to 22, 23, is when I really started to understand the business in a very you know different way than I had when I was a kid just going ah, I want to work in music. This I understood as a business.
2: Yeah, I think once you see the actual dollars that transfer uh, from the creation of IP to somebody's wallet, that's when you really recognize the business. Even if you talk about it, you talk about it. It's another thing when you actually see the royalty checks or see the writers actually change their lifestyle because all of a sudden they've made it. A a few questions I guess, because that was a lot of information. Um, when, uh, When you're told that the real money's in publishing, and before we continue on, you know, in current day, we still, you know, it feels like all the money's on master's side. Do you, it, and yet all these, all this uh, private money has been flooding into catalogs and whatnot because they, you know, evergreens still have so much value as for for music. Do you feel like? now that it's still true that publishing is where the real money is?
1: Well, I think that, I think just to break that comment apart, so back then, right, um, I think the comment the real money is in publishing is like record companies would spend a fortune, right, to break a new act. And, you know, that was definitely the time where one in 10 happened. The other nine were written off and dropped, right? And they would spend astronomical sums of money and you know it was it was really felt almost like a feast or famine as a business right as those recorded music businesses particularly like the new music side of it right like you know the catalogs of those companies really sort of kept them afloat um, but the, the new music releasing business, you know, to this day is still not that fantastic of a business on a standalone basis, which from a profitability standpoint, they oftentimes spend far more than they make. And if you exclude the catalogs, it's not there. So I think that's really more of where it was also a more disciplined business, right, is what part of what she was talking about. It's the notion that in publishing is a far more disciplined segment of the music industry. I mean, I can't necessarily say that that's true today, but, um, you know, back then that was certainly the case. Today, as far as money, look, yeah, we are definitely moving towards more equity, right, uh, for songwriters and publishers than, than what was back in the day. Um, but I, I will say that I think what drew me to it back then, right, was also that back then on the recorded music side, you know, if you were on a, a what was it, 88-12 deal, right, or you got 12% artist royalty, like, that was all right, you know, you were in a 10 but in publishing, it was the inverse, right? And so I thought it was great to be. You know, the other thing about publishing I was I was excited about was that you know, even when you did co-pub deals, seventy-five, twenty-five in favor of the writer, which was the complete opposite of what was going on in the recorded music business.
2: If you've been to your office, and I know Song Trust is part of downtown. We'll get to Song Trust later, but um, you have people who are literal humans looking for literal numbers on Spotify and whatnot to f- basically discover which writers are owed money like you actually employ people who do what you were doing at the time looking at charts but just you know now it's it's not just songs on charts that are creating some revenue so um is that uh was that the idea behind oh, yeah. creating something like Songtrust anyway? Oh, yeah. Was just to replicate the success you had y- and a younger self?
1: Yeah, I mean, the question was is like, you know, I can only go knock on so many doors, right? And and the question that you know was that I kept asking myself is, you know, can we do this at scale? You know, and that was really what led to to Songtrust. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, the the middle jump of the story was, you know, in my last few years at Spirit, we started to get into the catalog acquisition business uh, and started to buy quite a bit of catalogs, as well as do administration for um, much more well-known and well-established artists. You know, we worked with Chris Blackwell on doing administration for the Bob Marley estate, worked with Lou Reed, uh, Shaka Khan. Um, and we started to buy catalogs, things like Wang Chung and, uh, Rick Knowles' catalog back in the, back at the time and, uh, CNC Music Factory and things like that, which was, you know, an amazing thing to be part of, right? And to be part of, uh, you know, the acquisition of those, of those copyrights and see how that segment, the music investment side worked, you know, working with outside financing. Um, you know, and I was, uh, Really interested in seeing if there was a different way to do it. And if I could, frankly, if I could do it on my own, you know, and if I could start something from scratch. And um, I got the, the good fortune of starting, you know, Downtown Music Publishing uh, as an offshoot of Downtown Records back in 2007. How, and they how, just had tremendous...
2: Sorry, go ahead. How old were you in 2007? 25. At this point, it seems like all the moves are logical, You know, you go from, I'm going to get internships, helps to have a brother that sort of opens doors, you know. But you seem to, as I always say, like, you know, I I always walk through doors. And then once you're walking through, you have to prove that you belong. And then they'll open up more doors. You just keep walking through. It all seems like you um, never went into the wrong door. (laughs) And where, you know, like some of these, I guess you could argue that with Virgin, if you're being sent to USC, you know, to, to LA, you're working through high school, through college, so at least you have to fall back on school. But how did you not make any missteps?
1: Uh, you know, I wouldn't say I didn't make missteps. I made missteps, but uh, they were, you know, I think everything was somewhat, is a mix of being calculated, right, uh, and being very considerate. Um, I think one constant theme is uh, feeling like I have an opportunity to take my vision and see it wherever it was, right? Even, frankly, as an intern, right? I, there was there were internships that I quit because I didn't like them, and I didn't like what they want me to do. I'm not there to answer the phone. do I answer the phone, I'm not here, you know? Um, but I was very fortunate, both in my time at Spirit and uh, with Downtown, to uh, be allowed to... to take my thoughts and and take my ideas and and really um, take them out for a ride, you know? And uh, I would say that the difference between at Spirit, it was a lot of, I feel, the things that I did personally and as part of a team. Uh, And at Downtown, it was about building a team, you know? And I was given the opportunity to really build a team. Um,
2: So being given the opportunity... That's such a um, it's a very short sentence that means a lot of big things. Like I I think a lot of times, um, one anybody can start a publishing company or record company. So you know you can start your own opportunity. But what you're talking about is a different thing. Who when when you're talking about the opportunity, who flags you, and did you seek out? You know, did you seek out funding? Did somebody say, you're the guy, I'm going to give you some money, go sign some of your own, your own artists?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was uh, Josh Deutsch who I had established a long-term relationship with in the years before who was um, working with Downtown Records, started Downtown Records with two high school friends of his, Terrence Lamb uh, and John Josephson, who's now the CEO of CSEC, and was then at Allen & Company. And Josh and I were talking... Uh, at Medem in January of 20, uh, 2007 about the success he had had with Gnarls. And I just asked the very basic question of, you know, did you ever think about starting a publishing company or picking up the publishing for that? And he said, in fact, we had. <laughs> uh, and that, that became the kindling for a discussion around the formation of downtown music publishing. And, um, you know, it was Josh and Terrence and John who really uh, gave me that shot Uh, Early on, Um, and then eventually, our partners in the Myers family, who've been uh, our backers in downtown um, ever since, um, were the ones who gave me that shot. And uh, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to have them to have the Myers family with me this whole time.
2: When somebody says to you, um, Okay, here's this opportunity, you've now again, like. Doors are open, but you also open doors. You cracked it open. You said, You know, have you ever thought about this? He says, Sure. This, you know, I'm sure it's not like that happens in a day. There are weeks, months go by, but you establish this role and uh, you have to then go out and actually start a thing. Oh, yeah. And when you have the kind of numbers that you have behind downtown now, you know, 23 million music assets, there's, um, you know, cut back to the beginning. It's a weird thing where you're like, okay, you want, uh, I'm going to start with the first. You want to know, you know, you want to know it, that you I want to know start. the first?
1: So yeah. uh, a songwriter producer that I uh, had established a long relationship with him, Troy Taylor, uh, and his his manager, Delonte Murphy. Uh, Troy is one of, uh, in my opinion, the greatest um, R&B songwriter producer, particularly vocal producers of the 90s and 2000s into the 2010s he um worked with everyone under the sun uh from boys to men to Mary J Blige he did sweet lady for Tyrese he did B2K he discovered Trey songs and uh, wrote and produced most of those first three four albums um an enormous an enormous songwriter producer um The first deal I did at downtown was for Troy's catalog. Um, Troy also, besides some of those more contemporary names, had worked with a lot of legends uh, on some recent albums, Aretha Franklin, Patti LaBelle, et cetera, Isley Brothers. And I remember we did the deal for uh, Troy, um, and we went into a meeting, afterwards and someone said to me well what what do you have at downtown you just got going and i said we have a wonderful catalog it includes everything songs written you know that were written and recorded by franklin (laughs) and patty labelle and the isley brothers and you know tyrese and b2k and 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 mary j blige and so on. that one and um you know and that's how it goes you know and then uh, we were we were also we got an introduction to a production team out of Miami, uh, that had an artist that had just gotten signed uh, to Capitol, and they had a record called "This Is Why I'm Hot," and uh, we quickly became the publisher of their share of "This Is Why I'm Hot," and then we had our first number one, uh, and they were able to point to that. And uh, you know, we were very fortunate also to meet Antonina Armato a few months before uh, Miley Cyrus's first art album as a solo artist came out. And Antonina uh, wrote, I think it was 11 of the 12 or 10 of the 11, I don't, something along those tracks in the album. So in year one, now we're also working with Antonina on you know, one of the biggest pop records of the year. So it was uh, an exceptional couple of signings that were um, people who took chances on us, right? Because I say people took a chance on me, uh, start the business, and then, and then creative people took a chance on us as well to deliver a service. Um, and you know that's that's something that uh, you know you don't forget you don't forget easily and it helps you build the the basis of a business. Um,
2: In order to sign those people with those, that catalog, did you have to give them terms that were advantageous compared to? A you know a a major publisher to convince them to come to you, or were you going to these people where these major publishers weren't going, uh, or is it just your abilities that you know that the service you're providing is equal or better to any major?
1: I think it's a it's a combination, right? I mean, I don't think we did anything on the terms we've always prided ourselves on not being a company that gives away our services for free or or you know below market value. Um, But uh, I think it's a combination of those three things. You also have to remember that that period was a different time. People were scared in 2007 in a lot of places. There were more publishers back then, if you think about all the consolidation. So on the one hand, you had people worried about what was going on, the future of the business, Um, the value of songs, right? Because the album cuts weren't as valuable anymore, right? So there was a little of that trepidation. But on the flip side, relative to today, you had so many more publishers who were doing deals with that kind of sort of stage writer. Um, I think our flexibility in the early days of doing all different kinds of deals, right? Administration agreements, co-publishing agreements, full catalog acquisitions, a mix of them. Um, that really helped us out. Uh, it also helped us out that, um, you know, the first person I hired was a guy named Jed Catrancha who still works with me today. We've been working together, I want to say it's 19 years. I We can't figure it out. Because um, he was with me at Spirit and uh, oversaw sync licensing at Spirit. And he became, um, you know, the first person I hired. And truly... Um, an extraordinarily gifted executive, uh, bridging the gap between music and media. Um, he does it at the absolute highest levels. He's also a walking encyclopedia of music. And, um, one of the kindest, most gentle people you'll ever meet. And so having Jed with me uh, every step of the way is another way in which we were able to recruit some of these early names that we have. And then the team that Jed built was able to deliver for them. And again, if you remember the time, 2007, you're still convincing people to agree to the SYNC license, right? Um, to do it in, in general. And so, you know, Jed was very, very good at that. And, um, you know, it was, an, it, was, it was a time when SYNC was really just maturing as an important part of the industry um and he really built a team that that I think is continues to be second to none um but but revolutionized a lot of how that works what the the the, the writer publisher relationship around the use of your art in another form of art and negotiating the right fee and explaining this is good for your career this is good for the copyright or this isn't good for your career and this isn't good for the copyright um fewer people will be better at that than Jed um and i think that uh having him on board from from the very early days was was a huge part of our ability to to get to where we are today
2: 2007 2008 um those you know basically that shift in both the economy here like at, at large and the music industry technologically speaking you had to have also some of the same trepidation everyone else had i mean bands were kind of like disappearing and uh you know if it wasn't for dr luke and max martin from for the next 4 years at that point it felt like there you know there were very few people who were really playing in the sandbox it was a really tough time outside of certain cliques um you know, MP3s are kind of hitting, are still doing well, so there's some mechanicals at that point. But weren't you at all nervous of the industry? We,
1: we were, I would say to people then, I remember saying it often, um, when I go into my board meetings, I'm talking about every incremental dollar because we didn't have a catalog that had been used to earning money from CD sales from tracks that people may or may not have listened to. We didn't know from the gravy train of owning a catalog, right? Every dollar we made was on our back from the next decision that we made as a company and from the next writer we signed or the next catalog we administered. Um, And I think that gave us a lot of clarity, right? Because we weren't sitting there showing all these different economic models of what may or may not happen to this gigantic valuable catalog that we're managing because we were new. And that was one of the benefits. We just weren't distracted, right? And we went where there was opportunity. One of the places that we went very, very uh, uh, methodically in that period was Japan. We made more money in Japan in 2008 and 2009 than in any other country besides the United States, which is extremely rare. But that's because we employed people who their sole focus was to manage relationships between songwriters in the United States and Europe and the Japanese pop market, because those albums were, despite what was happening around the world, they were still moving a million physical units, you know, and their royalties there, nothing, you know, you can't even, it was a $1.80 in publishing royalties, $2 in publishing royalties, a unit, you know, the airplay was tremendous. they put out three or four versions of the album. They'd do a holiday version of the album. They would do a best of every other year. Uh, Japan was an extraordinary market at that time. So when people were talking about, oh yeah, the music, yeah, but there were pockets. There was exciting places to go. Japan was one of them. And so I think we were able to kind of zig where other people zag. I, I, we would say that to people in meetings and they'd be like, what? And, you know, they wouldn't understand. And, um, you know, still cry about the, you know, decimation of physical or iTunes kind of flatlining them. And, you know, uh, for us, it, we just, everything was upside. I don't think we were, I don't, we weren't really worried. And I think ultimately true, like, I didn't ever think music was going away, right? It was just format change. And how many times has the industry been through format change, right? It just happened to also correspond with the global financial crisis, which really meant that every newspaper headline around the music business was bad. Um.
2: Well, it you know, not to keep going back and forth, but here we are in an in, in era where... Um, you know there are huge populations in India, China that are still yet to be monetized well. Um, are you still looking for those pockets? And how much of your effort now are you spending looking for that? Versus now you have your own gravy train of twenty three million assets. Do you you know? Do you still feel the drive to look for those pockets?
1: A hundred percent. I mean, I would say as far as the company is concerned, um, you know, we made a shift uh, in new markets a number of years ago. We bought a business um, called Shear Publishing Africa, which is... uh
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash
0: host.
1: Uh, the largest independent publisher, administrator in, uh, on the continent, based in Johannesburg, and it for a long time is run by a gentleman named David Alexander, who I've known forever. And um, part of the reason it was exciting to work with David and to acquire Shear was not only to have a a footprint and a foothold uh, on the continent and get to learn from absolute experts on his team, music from across the continent, because people everywhere, artists signed from all across the continent. Um, But based in what is by far the largest music economy in, uh, in the continent, Um, David had a tremendous ambition to explore new markets. And last year, uh, he was named to lead our new markets around the world and the expansion of our business. We have people on the ground now in, uh, you know, 20 cities around the world. And as far as, you know, places that I'm excited about, I think, you know, there's markets like Brazil, um, which I think, uh, you know, Brazilian music over indexes globally. um, And, you know, there I think from a service provider level, there's a lot of opportunity. Um, I think, you know, places like China, unfortunately, copyright law, not so great. Um, and so for some reason, and publishers, a little harder. Uh, master recordings do better. Um, India is exciting to me because music is um, built into the fabric of, you know, everything in India and in popular culture um, and in, in life in general. Um, I, I am very bullish that in India things are going to, it's going to be a very significant driver of revenue for the music industry and something that, that we look at.
2: All right, so we're going back. we um, you know, your you guys are growing your market share in a time when people are starting to consolidate their publishing companies. You know, EMI is becomes still has like a few more years left before it ends up being consolidated, and some of these big companies become one. Um, but you guys, I I guarantee, people offered to acquire you along the way what prevented you from from taking that leap? Wouldn't that have been easier? Yeah, look, I think
1: people um, enter the music publishing space with two sort of different views one is like, are you building a company or are you building a catalog, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have built some wonderful catalogs song by song, they buy assets you know, Um, we were building a company, you know, our company was going to you know, own copyrights. We were going to manage copyrights on our behalf and on behalf of others, and we were going to develop new copyrights. That, that is not a catalog building business, you know. Um, and I think for us, it was always very important. You know, the number of copyrights, you know, that we ended up owning always dwarfed the number we ended up managing for other people. Um, and so the business of being a service provider to others was innate to the company. It was what the company was. The fact that we also owned an asset that we could maybe monetize one day or not, uh, that's just a function of how we ran the business. But it was a business, not a catalog. And I think we all know, anyone probably listening to this and yourself included, know the difference between companies that are building catalogs uh, and companies that are actual companies.
2: We talk about this a lot in for Unknown Music, You know, my company. We always say it's like you know, you can get hit songs, but it's about writers who write hit songs because you know, those people have multiple songs. And there's in order to play the copyright game where you're buying actual songs versus um, working with writers who are writing multiple hit songs, it's it seems, you know, more expensive to keep up in a weird sort of way from my perspective, being a writer where I feel like you can develop writers who can, build their own catalogs, that seems more streamlined in a way to me than being able to compete where you're actually buying existing assets. That feels like that's an expensive way to try to run a publishing company.
1: It depends what your ambition is. I mean, you know, our our ambition was, you know, back in the day was around, you know, the ownership of copyright and 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 managing for others and developing. And I think, you know, our view is that we ran a very good business doing all three of those. Um, many of the copyrights we bought uh, over time, either we bought all or some economic interest in, were things that we were already the administrators for, right? And, and so, you know, there's a, a pretty fresh pipeline of deals that are really not on the market, not trading. I mean, I think for every... You hear about this now, all these, you know, where market multiples have gone. And I think that, you know, for every deal, certainly back then that was, you know, promoted in the trades, uh, there were 50 deals that actually happened, right? Um, And a lot of people, a lot of writers don't want to talk about the deal. A lot of estates don't want to talk about the fact that they sold a piece of this or a piece of that, or, you know, it's no one's business. And I think that, um, you know, for us, it was a really multifaceted approach. I think, you know, we, we were... Able to win deals by being able to do all things. You know, I mean, I I point often to the deal we did with Ryan Tedder where we acquired Ryan's back catalog is all public. We acquired, acquired Ryan's back catalog in, in 2016, but also did a going forward deal with him an administration deal with him and worked with him on, a, on, on his new publishing company at the time, Patriot, uh, and the writers that he had signed and helped him establish that and did some JVs with him in that, in that deal. But the flexibility to do all types of deals, um, I think enabled us to attract uh, the widest number of potential clients. And I say potential because when on the, the publishing side, we were offering creative services That's not something I think scales particularly well, right? I think that's something you can't really do at scale, you know, um, relative to the royalty collection side, which I think it frankly benefits from scale.
2: Yeah, I mean, I want to ask at some point about PROs. You and I've had (laughs) multiple conversations about PROs, and that's something where the whole argument is the scalability of that and how that the uh, overall collection of an entire. Population of songwriters, yeah. in theory, according to them, really benefits each individual writer. Um, I guess we can jump to that right now. Uh, and then we can go back to your story. But you have a specific point of view when it comes to performance rights organizations, who are the organizations that collect for uh, performances, live, radio. You know, if a TV show is played and you have a song in it all that it, it gets collected under the performance rights organizations. Um, they're also, generally speaking, not the most progressive technologically speaking, and they're stuck in a world where they're collecting um, and it's very difficult. It almost has uh, Harry Fox vibes um, when you talk about PROs because Harry Fox used to collect mechanicals and Struggle to do it. That's now where why we have the MLC Music Modernization Act. I know for a lot of people, this is uh, this is like publishing three hundred one here. But explain where PROs are in your head and what they could do to be better.
1: Um, I think it's a very challenging environment for PROs to operate in because. Um, on the one hand, you have a lot of
2: wait. Real quick, PROs being ASCAP, BMI, CSEC, GMR, so on and so forth. Continue on. Yeah, so. and
1: obviously, all over the world, every country outside of the United States, principally, has one. They have a monopoly. They're allowed to operate as a monopolies in a lot of these countries. Some some have more than one. Brazil has many. Um, but uh, you know, I think it's a challenging environment for them for a variety of reasons. On the one hand, you know, most of them are nonprofit. You know, membership organizations. Um, they are not structured as businesses that, you know, can offer, you know, uh, top tier technology talent, the, you know, equity packages to come in and help innovate in any kind of way. It's just not like as a business, they're not structured that way. Right. The second thing is, is that, you know, there's this great quote from many years ago, the former CEO of Pandora that said, you know, music is global, but copyright is local. And every one of these organizations has their own rules how they collect money, how they distribute money, how you can become a member, how you, you, maybe you can't become a member. Um, and it's very complex and very complicated. And, and the reason, like, ultimately, right, is, and this is where I think they have the hardest time, is that these organizations were established at a time when a small number of songwriters and publishers controlled all the world's music that was recorded many, many, many times over and over and over again, right? Think this is all these organizations date back a hundred years, you know, uh with GMR as a notable exception. Uh and they were, you know, it was the 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 age of the great American songbook. And how do we collect that money? And um how do we collect it from a handful of radio stations and television companies? How do we go out to the biggest venues in the country, and make sure we get paid and distribute that money? Uh, to these very small number of songwriters and publishers. Today, they're dealing with volumes that are unheard of, right? I mean, whether or not you believe Spotify has 20,000, 40,000, or 60,000 songs that, you know, being uploaded a day, uh, is the equivalent of a new record store every day coming online, right? Many of these songs are, are, are never registered with collection societies around the world. Uh, and so they get these huge data files, right, from everyone who's licensing music all over the world. And none of it, <laughs> corroborates with with what's in their database, um, and it's an enormous mess for them, you know. And it's and it's and it's a real significant challenge. On the flip side, their clients, right, songwriters and publishers, um, publishers who have direct relationships with certain digital services like Spotify or YouTube, ask, a, I think, a legitimate question. I get paid directly from them. Why do I need you in the middle on the performing right side? Why can't I also get from them? They pay me monthly. Why you pay me quarterly with a nine month lag? What is this? You know, how, what is the rate I'm paying? Oh, it's your overhead. What's your overhead this year? What if it's more next year? And so I think a lot of publishers are asking a lot of questions, which puts a lot of pressure. And then their traditional sources of revenue, which are radio and television, are, you know, tumbling. Like, I don't need to tell you that radio and television around the world is tumbling. Um, And then in the most recent time, obviously, the pandemic uh, eviscerated quite a lot of the live performance income and all the money they would get from restaurants and bars and hotels and nightclubs and things. And so it's made it a very challenging environment to be a PRO today. Um, but I'm hopeful, right? Because I'm hopeful there's going to be more innovation. I think there's an opportunity for innovation. I think songwriters are becoming more educated and active. I think publishers, frankly, money coming in um, from, you know, Financial institutions that might provide a little more scrutiny as to where the money is actually coming from and how it's being managed is going to probably put a lot of pressure on these organizations to deliver. It's not reasonable to charge 25, 30, 40 percent for your service. It's just not. It's not reasonable to sit on money for nine to 18 months in this environment. You know, but that is how they operate. And uh, I think it's going to take a lot of pressure to get them. It's
2: interesting when you're saying, you know, 30, 40 percent isn't necessarily... You know, worth that when you um, in other parts of the industry when you're talking about an 88, 12 split from record labels to artists or you know publishing being 5050 50 on publishing, you could argue it's 75, 25 but um, all of those are pretty significant chunks. Do you feel like uh, do you feel like that other parts of the industry are also overcharging for their services?
1: Oh yeah um, I think you know the cost of capital um, is uh, a lot lower today. People understand royalties in a much different way. When you think about you know look an emerging artist who has no proven track record, right it's all risk capital that they're investing and in. I think that whoever puts that money to work is entitled to a, a reasonable reward. On the flip side, when you are paying nothing for the uh, right to collect someone's money, um, saying that it costs you 30% to do that job is just not, not reasonable. Or frankly, holding on, not, you know, paying out distribution, certain income types once a year, because you can't invest in the technology to make it, you know, twice a year, four times a year, much less weekly. You know, I mean, I, I find it ironic that there are services that we offer, uh, at downtown and other segments of the business where, you know, we pay our clients weekly. Uh, and you know that's kind of it's sort of comical to me that that in this day and age that there's any entities in the in the industry that can think they can get or think that it's reasonable to make semi-annual or annual distributions i don't understand
2: in inevitably somebody's going to respond to this oh blockchain answers everything um, Maybe. thinking that essentially you could you know <laughs> is that something that you guys invest in is ways to continue to, you know, is weekly even too long?
1: I, I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, there are certain there are certain things that will require, I mean, I think, look, the, the ability for someone to come in and uh, rather receive on an automated basis any monies that flow through our pipes is, is you know, our North Star, if you will, right? Um, there are a lot of things that go on in the industry that unfortunately make that impossible at the moment. Um, you know, will blockchain potentially help? Possibly, you know, and something that we're looking at were uh, investors in Verify Media, which is, you know, uh, looking at blockchain in an interesting way with a number of other companies. Um, in the industry, uh, we keep our eye on it, but I think there's, there's so much to do. I think people saying like, oh, there's this new technology that if we just did this, everything will be great. I promise you is not the case. Uh, if that were the case, we'd all be there, right? Uh, it's also worth noting that there are you know, and I won't get into the details, but it it's worth noting that there are a lot of actors in the music industry that don't want to see this change. They don't want the efficiency. And they talk what they do, but I don't I don't necessarily believe that everyone coming to the table uh is necessarily interested in in, in that transparency. And those that are perhaps are not interested in the investment necessary to get you there, right?
2: Yeah, it may not even be the transparency as much as the both the capital and time investment it would take to completely overhaul a, you know, a 70 year old, you know, company or something like
1: that. Uh, True. And I also think that it's worth noting that, look, you know, across the industry, many of the same people who um, were here for when, you know, we had record profits in the 90s and early 2000s and made a lot of decisions that resulted in the industry not having Uh, those record profits anymore and seeing an industry in decline um, and weren't necessarily willing to um, be at the forefront of digital innovation in the late 90s and 2000s are actually the very same people that are um, involved today. And um, I, you know, you'd hope lessons are learned and we hope for more innovation and we hope for more pushing, um, you know, but I look at things like Spotify is still charging $9.99. The whole world has inflation, except for the value of access to all the world's music, right? That's still the same price. We're still paying, you know, is it $9.99 and $2012 for Spotify, right? Um, I think the, the issues are on both sides. You have people not charging enough for the music, and then when the money comes in, we do a horrible job as an industry sharing it with people. We're getting better, right? Things like the MLC, big steps forward. Um, but, you know, I, I do believe on behalf of creators in particular, we have a lot of work to do as an industry, uh, both to help raise rates, which is something only the industry can do. Uh, and number two is to do a much better job distributing. Uh, I think a lot more effort and attention needs to be on both of those points. Um, yeah, it's critical that we, we continue to do that if we want to have uh, the growth that we've seen actually, you know, be material for the creatives.
2: If mechanicals, which traditionally were for CDs, vinyl, you know, tapes, so on and so forth, anything physical, I have depreciated because people aren't buying that. Although, um, obviously, we celebrated before this call. Uh, you know, uh, the statutory rate going from nine point one cents to twelve cents is an exciting thing, even if it's only one percent of the the overall revenue for the industry, it's still a a move in the right direction. Um, But if mechanicals are disappearing and then also radio and television are disappearing for songwriters on the performance side, where are songwriters going to buy? Like, How can a songwriter ever buy a house or a car or pay rent? Um, What would they have to do in order to create Where are you seeing revenue for an individual songwriter? As publishing as a whole, you see how it's scalable if you can have more and more writers that are creating more, you know, it doesn't matter if they're creating less and less revenue if you have more and more writers to sort of compensate for that, which we'll get to for some of the admin stuff that you've been a part of. But where can an individual songwriter make a healthy living in...
1: 2020s. You know, I think uh there will always be a market for really fan, play, like, great songs, right? And I really do believe that, like, there's this sort of cream of the crop, you know, if you will, in terms of um, the, the ultimate popularity of them, right, but the reality is, is that songwriters are facing, I think, you know, stiff competition in a lot of ways, right, and I think a lot of it actually comes down to how people, general public, consume music, right? Like, it used to be that, like, listening to music was an active thing you did, right? Like you would put on music and that was the activity, right? And now music is in the background and everything we do, there's like almost nowhere where you can escape music where it wasn't intentional. Even when people put up, you know, reels on Instagram, it's music in the background, right? So everything is with music in the background. Walking into a Walmart is very hyper, you know, specific music selected based on the department you're in, right? But you can't escape it. Um, The industry is doing a much better job catching up and charging for those uses, right? I mean, think about Facebook, Instagram license from a few years ago, the first time, right? TikTok finally being licensed. I think this all matters, right? Because, you know, if the industry continues to be uh, aggressive, I think the way that David, Israelite, and NMPA have been in terms of driving new licenses forward and delivering new value, that you'll see, you know, categories like fitness, you'll see social gaming, you'll see those things add material amounts to the pie, but it's still gonna have to go through that to get, you know, dripped out to individual songwriters based on, you know, effectively the popularity of the music. Are there things that certain songwriters can do to individually earn additional income? Um, sure, but I think it's entirely situational, right? You know, and, and it depends on sort of what their own interests are and what their intent is and what they're looking to do with their lives as writing songs directly. I mean, there's a variety of different ways in which it can go. Um, but I think it really is a, a specific conversation. This goes back to the scaling question, right? Like, I think the writer publisher relationship can be one where a publisher, based on what the writer wants to do, the skill set of the writer, their their ambition, they can sit and come up with a plan and help figure that out. Um, the royalty piece is going to be one component of that, but it's an industry question as to whether or not it can ever it can deliver enough money for them to be able to buy a house.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting com- time to be a new writer with talent because we're back to some sort of quantity game of you know not only you, you can aim for that quality piece of music but you also need to somewhat compete with the 20 40 60,000 songs that are being uploaded yep. a day that's a that's a sea of music that you have to compete with and and yet it's really hard to adjust to doing just quantity for the sake of trying to buy a car I was
1: I mentioned I spoke at NYU the other day and someone said to me do you think what happened with you know photography is going to happen with songwriting and then the creation of music and releasing and you know everyone's a everyone's a photographer now right and you know we're all fantastic we could put filters on we could do all these great things and I said I don't I don't think that that's necessarily you know gonna happen in music I don't I, I do think many more people will create music uh, 10x what we have today just in the next couple of years um, but I think that you know there's that class, right, of music that touches a lot of people, that, that art form, uh, I think, which is unique, um, which I think will we'll, um, often hover above. And I think that's okay, right, because I don't believe that every one of those people who, I don't think everyone who uploads music, uh, creates music, shares music, has the intent to be, you know, a major global superstar, you know, or has the intent to be a Grammy Award-winning producer or a decorated songwriter. I think a lot of people... Create music just to create music, you know, far far more than wake up every day and want wanting to like you know, be successful at it.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned the idea of the numbers that we're talking about being uploaded today, That that's a new record store just landing on Spotify, you know, and and the fact that you can create a beat on your phone and essentially upload it from your phone right now is what it's done is. It's made it harder to when you when you walked into a Best Buy or a Virgin or a, you know a, any any record store from twenty years ago, it was somewhat curated for you. I'll say that euphemistically, you know. But for the most part, the you know the popularity. Some of it was thrust upon us, but a lot of it was music there that was intentionally placed on end caps uh you know everything had its place in a record store mm-hmm. and now the idea that uh you know you could just walk into the virgin and just put your music in the you know you can just alphabetically put your music along with you know whoever you want you don't necessarily get the end caps that's what playlists are yeah that's you true know? that's but true but you don't you don't you don't you can compete with the majors, which is amazing, but it definitely makes it harder to find the end caps of, you know, that that cream of the crop. Yeah. I, I I think playlists are going to be more and more important and that's going to be the thing that labels hold on to. Um anyway. Uh going going back to your journey through the 2010s to where we are now, you really diversified the people that you worked with. I mean, some of the names are classic, classic musicians and artists. How much of, you know, I I don't know how many of these are actually... Downtown or not, but this is what's in my notes. You know, Bob Marley, Lou Reed, Chaka Khan, we mentioned, but also Motley Crue. Those were all, those
1: were all spirit. Oh, that's all spirit. Okay. So,
2: where, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, when under downtown, you had a number of really big artists and writers. Um, how much of this job for you had been and continues to be you as the music fan since your mom said it was you listening to music? Versus how much of it is because acquiring these writers and
1: catalogs is good for business? So, um, one of the things that uh, I personally always felt, you know, in, in downtown days is um, there are, for me personally, my own personal taste is not dictating what the company signed ever. Uh, you know, there were things I was uh, a fan of that also were a good business decision. Um, But I I never really sort of leaned in, in that kind of a way. I hired people who did, you know. Um, uh, As far as building the catalog, you know, the, the mission was, you know, oftentimes, whether it was administration agreements or acquisitions, is, you know, a microcosm of all the world's music, right? And so, you know, when Motley Crue's catalog was available for administration, they'd been a Warner for a long time, and they were just thinking of a, a fresh start somewhere else as they were building back up to go back on tour and put a first record out in a very long time. Um, you know, we came into administration agreement, and then several years later, ended up acquiring those rights uh, from Nikki Six. Um, who's the principal songwriter of the band, you know, and then similarly along the way, like, you know, there are times when there's an intersection between a great business opportunity and I'm a fan when we started working with the estate of John Lennon and with Yoko Ono directly. Uh, that you know goes without almost goes without saying um you know and I, and I feel you know that those moments are amazing right when you get to marry what you do um, in business with what you're actually a fan of but you know the 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 building i I, I never thought it made sense for me and when I was running the company to really impart my own personal taste too much on it. I mean some people disagree I just that's not when you have the goal of of what our goals have been, I, it doesn't necessarily make make sense.
2: When um, you know you're working with the John Lennons now, and you have this company that is becoming, um, it's it's become you know synonymous with an uh, the other majors. I mean, even as an independent company, it becomes a major independent. Um, you end up being on the NMPA board, the National Music Publishers Association. When did that make you feel like you had made it? Was there a time, you know, for like artists, it's always like, ah, you you hit a chart, you did this. Was that the moment that you felt like you had made it?
1: I, you know, I I, I actually, you know, I get asked that question a lot. Like, when do you think, like, what was like an inflection point for the business? And so. You know, in 2012, we had um, built a a very nice business. Um, We were frequently, you know, one of the top 10 publishers in the billboard charts and all that fun stuff. I was not yet on the NMPA board. Um, but we, we made this decision to sell our recorded music business, um, actually back to Josh Deutsch and, and a group. And, um, we went like full throttle on publishing and building out our song trust business and like really kind of focusing on that side of the coin and, and really taking a sort of a different bent on service and really sort of scaling the services we were providing. And, um, We got a phone call, right, which was that phone call about, you know, would you be interested in um, uh, making a proposal to administer the estate of John Lennon? And um, my, my view in terms of an inflection point for the business, and I've said this before, is that that was really an inflection point, right? When the arguably greatest songwriter of all time, the people who handle his music, um, reach out and say, would you, would you like to manage this? You know, this, this thing, this, and it, you know, yeah, by the way, it includes Imagine, which is, you know, one of the most well-known songs of all time ever. Uh, you know, and it includes, oh, by the way, it also includes a couple of Beatles cuts. You know, it's the first four Beatles songs. You're like, uh, and you say, wow, like we're, yeah, we've, we've, we've made it that we've been asked. Right. Um, and I think we, we took that very seriously and we're, we've, you know, uh feel very lucky to have uh won that and continue to you know now i guess it's almost 10 years later uh still still represent the estate and they've been incredible clients we've done amazing work with them uh including one of the things i'm most proud of uh which was getting uh yoko ono uh credit for co-writing Imagine, which she did which she never got credit for and in fact uh something that david israel had a hand in doing when we presented uh, an award uh, to the estate for the song and also announced that very day that we were changing the copyright to include Yoko's name, which was something John wanted to do just before he passed away. Um,
2: well, this brings us to our next segment of What Would David Israelite, ask Justin Kalifowicz on And The Writer Is, and, and <laughs> he asks, he asks uh, um, why do you make him feel so old being uh, that you're the youngest board
1: member? Oh, I just got lucky to start early. I don't, I don't, David, David's, David's always the the youngest looking guy in the room. Yeah, he does look good.
2: Um, Shout out to you, David. Uh, (laughs) We, you know, that was obviously a big deal to have Yoko added to Imagine. I imagine that also had, you know, she has, she's such a legend and infamous in many ways. Um, Not rightfully so, but so it is. Um, did that have any political backlash? Did it have an economic, not backlash, but did did it change nah. anything economically? No, because no, nah.
1: it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the estate is the estate. It didn't change any right. of the economics. Um, it was really about recognition. You know, um, we did not the 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 week after the the ceremony, the NMPA annual meeting. Um, You know, this was really, I think, a story that took off um, and had, you know, several hundred pieces of press in every publication under the sun, as you could imagine. And it was all along the lines of what we had hoped for, right, which is credit where credit is due. Um, And I was really, really proud that that was something we were able to pull off because I, um, you know, had known that story uh, for a long time, and I heard that interview uh, that John did on the BBC where he said that she was a writer, and I always wondered why. And when we sort of started to work with the estate a little bit more closely, we were able to, you know, actually make that, their, you know, honor their decision. Why to was make, uh, I? I, that a I guess I
2: don't remember why was he? Why was she not added as a songwriter from the beginning?
1: the The, the, the quote was uh, something along the lines of that he worked. With with, Yoko, um, you know, had had had, uh, published um, a set of poems called Grapefruit, and it was um, the the lines for Imagine are directly from there. And his quote was something along the way that, like, you know, just like he had worked with so many other co-writers, he had worked with Yoko on that song, and it was, um, I think, he said he was being a bit macho at the time to to just have himself. Uh, I think was the actual quote that, that they gave. But it was along those lines. And, you know, I gave the quote, and it was 10 years later that that that, that happened. Um, and, uh, you know, I think to everyone sort of close to the creativity and the creation of that song, a lot of it has been documented about it, um, felt that that was appropriate. And I think that that's why there wasn't really any backlash, you know, is that if you actually know the history of how it all came about, there's, there's hard, hardly anything to have any backlash about. And uh, I think yeah, it's a great one. Yeah, it moment. sure is.
2: Um, what is song Trust?
1: Um Songtrust is a royalty collection platform that enables any songwriter around the world uh regardless of you know the level of success they've had to register their songs in a single place and collect 100% of all their publishing royalties. Um we enable people to collect for one song, for your whole catalog, for one year, forever. Uh it's a basic $100 sign up fee and it's a 15% administration fee. Um, you know, it's used by about 300,000 writers around the world. It manages about f- just under 4 million song copyrights today. It's also the technology platform that uh we use to manage what is now Downtown Music Services Publishing uh catalog, the Lenin, et cetera, the um the, the those works from that side of our, our business. Um and you know, several hundred independent publishing companies around the world use it as a back end to collect their royalties. Um and uh, a business that, you know, really came to be in 2010 when we said, can we scale royalty collection? Right? Can we solve this like you know there's 4 million artists on MySpace Music but there's only at the time about 600,000 artists at between ASCAP and BMI uh where are all these songs being registered who's collecting these songs and you realize that it's songwriters and publishers uh, where publishers were focusing only on the top end of the market and the volume of songwriters was growing and growing and growing. And how can we solve that question? How can we offer something simple and easy uh, to enable people to collect their royalties? Do you...
2: So have you found that, you know, we're talking about parts of the publishing industry that are scalable and you said that services are hard to scale, um, not services, creative services, creative yeah. services are, hard, are hard to scale. Do you think that that could be scalable to match the
1: yeah. I mean is, is I, I, ask, to, I ask people it, and I don't I don't I don't want to say that I don't want to compare um you know music publishers uh uh, to other things. I think that the, the role they play is unique, right? But like if you were to talk to anyone who's sort of like in the personal services business, right? Whether or not it's like a lawyer, right? Or if you think even like in the medical side, if you were to think about like a therapist, right? Or if you think about like other things, like there's only sort of so much time you have to learn to get to understand. Are there tools that can be built to help enhance and this and that? Sure. But I still think that the human relationship and that connection, right? The translation of art into commerce, which I think is often a misunderstood role of the publisher, um, is something that, you know, is a very, very extraordinarily difficult thing to do at scale. Are there platforms that enable people to upload music and then those platforms go out and uh, license those music? That, that music? I mean, you see that in, like, royalty-free world and stuff like that. But, you know, if you stop for a second and believe that a song is a unique art form, right, Uh, that, you know, is something that songwriters do and with the help of publishers bring to market, however that means, uh, whatever that means to people, um, then that's kind of unique than this, like, you know, managing millions of of pieces of data, frankly, and matching them with other data and, you know, licensing them. That's That's all the business. That's all the after, right? And I think the notion that, like, this activity of you know, translating art into commerce, you know, you kind of are like, I don't want to say cheapening what art means, I guess, in a way, if you were to say, well, we can scale that too. I mean, maybe you can. I haven't seen anything interesting that does that.
2: Are all admin
1: companies the same? Of course not, no. Um, I think that, you know, it's not as bad as it used to be. I think a lot of admin companies... You know, they would have admin in like one country and then they would farm out the admin to everybody else and not tell you that, right? Or not tell you how much they were paying for that service. Um, But I think that one of the challenges that admin companies have today, uh, if you just do admin um, and you're not uh, um, doing it on a scale Basis is that it's really hard to be competitive, you know, um, collecting money directly from, you know, dozens of countries around the world and dozens of digital services. They're not inclined to do direct deals. Um, with smaller companies, right? I mean, most, most uh, YouTube is classic, wanting to reduce the number of suppliers. Um, a lot of countries around the world, the societies make it extremely difficult to become a direct member. Um, so I think it, 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 the, the, in this world where scale helps, um, we've certainly seen that be the case, right? In the scale of our business both on a quality level and the scale and the number level, um, and frankly, the fact that we you know employ so many people on the technology side—technology is by far the, the largest um, division in the business—is um, what enables us to engage directly on the, uh, with, with the collection societies and digital services in a way that I think is unique in the market. All
2: right, we're going to go to this next segment. Our final segment, five for five. I'm gonna just list five things. Tell me what you know comes off the top of your head, and we're gonna do uh, something that I think is appropriate just uh, for this particular interview. Uh, let's start with the publishing industry growing. What about the National Music Publishers Association?
1: Uh, increasingly one of the most important tools that songwriters and publishers have to advocate for them uh, in in what is a very fast changing market CRB an extremely frustrating process uh, to get songwriters paid Uh, it's probably one of the, the most frustrating things that we have to deal with that we can't negotiate our rights in a free market
2: Performance rights organizations hopefully
1: continuing to innovate
2: the future of downtown
1: uh, the best is yet to come I
2: hope that's true uh Justin thank you so much for doing this um you know it I think if people uh maybe people pick up on it or not but We've sat down before, and our conversations are not a whole lot different from this. (laughs) You're, you're, that's true. You know, you're very smart. I can ask any question, and you have a response that constantly educates me and the community. It's why, you know, uh, you're such a valuable asset to the to the whole community, and um, you know, it's it's fun to be a, a writer and you know an executive and to understand that there are people who have dedicated their lives to the business the way that I feel like I have and I I just I, I love listening to your journey and uh, you know you have you've such a, a strong, you're such a strong force in the future of what we're doing you're i i mean generally speaking when you're on the n m p a board you know they're they're really you know your point of view being younger is really important and in, in that room so uh you know, I, I can't wait to see you know you in Irwin's shoes, and you've been there for another. <laughs> you know, when you're there for another forty years, and and we get to see you know all the things that you've accomplished in the music business. I just can't wait. I, it's so it's so fun to watch your career. So thank you for doing this podcast.
1: Of course, thanks, Ross. Thanks for having me. There you go.
2: This episode is produced by Joe London, Hypnosis, Mega House Management, and myself. Shout out Paige McDonald, Kelly Fox, Casey Robinson, David Silberstein, Tim Kirch, and Zach Weinstein. See you all next week. I'm Ross Golan, signing off.